This is a crowd podcast. Harry Truman, Dire Stay, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon. He had to pop up. Tricky Dicky. Had to be Nixon. Had to be. Hello again and welcome to episode nine oh my gosh. of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is today. All dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and his ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. This is Katie Puckrick. Katie, we go where no other podcast goes because no other podcast has got Billy. No, no other podcast is Billy, and no other podcast has our sense of reckless abandon. That's so what it is. It is. I mean, we don't care. We probably should care. We should probably check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. So today, we're talking about Richard Nixon. It's a biggie. It's a biggie. And also, Billy slightly obsessed because he mentions Nixon not once, not twice, but thrice. Thricely. Thricely in the course of the entire song. Um, he has a little bit of a bee in his bonnet about Ricardo Nixon, methinks. <laughs> and um, probably easy to understand because before Donald Jessica Trump came on the scene, Nixon really was, by all accounts, just the worst president there ever was in the history of presidents. Now, I think if Billy were to rewrite the song, he would take Nixon's mention down to maybe one, one and a half, don't you think? So he'd bump up the Trump mentions. Yeah. And by default, then he's lowering the Nixon count. I think so. I think that's how it works. Did you, as a a man from limey land, ever have, I don't know, a conception, some sort of idea of what Nixon was all about? How did he come on your horizon? He came on my horizon, Katie, initially with just the appendage gate to everything. So as a kid, you'd hear about a scandal and you, you'd thinking, why is this gate? And then I think it's the image of him when he's got his suit buttons done up and then he's got his arms outstretched and he's doing the peace sign, which I've subsequently found out was to wind up people who like the peace sign. Ah. And he looks like the least charismatic president of all time. He looks like a man like trying out the presidency. And then as you find out more about him, you realise... What a weird man Richard Milhouse Nixon is. Like, yeah. He's just such a strange... You know, the great secret to, to sitcom characters, they always say, is the gap between someone's uh, ambitions and where they really are. That's Nixon, isn't it? What you're saying, he, he lacks a certain amount of self-awareness. He just he seems to want to be a man that he's not. And everything that happens in his life seems to be around that tension. Like he wants to be the charismatic uh, leader. He wants to be like the matinee idol. But he's this jowly guy who's sort of, you know, 10 o'clock stubble comes in at 8 o'clock in the morning, who, you know, wears a a suit and tie at home, who can never relax, who can never trust people. I think that he needed to just do a little bit of Pilates. And yeah. he would have he would have been more relaxed. I mean, certainly would have helped his stereophonic peace sign, uh, you know, arm V shape. I remember being a very small child. Um, I'm older than you are, so I have more mileage on my clock. And I do remember as a youngin looking at the front of a newspaper one day and seeing a very smiley man. Uh, in a in a row of men who were not smiling, and I asked my parents who these men were, and it was explained to me that they were all running for president, and this would have been 1968, and I announced. 
very precociously uh, <laughs> that I felt that Richard Nixon deserved to win because he was the one who was smiling and really? nobody else was smiling. So I called it as a youngin, um, and just goes to show you that is probably as sophisticated as voters get in picking their presidents. His smile is quite reptilian, though, isn't it? Like it's not it's not an eye smile. It's not an eye smile. The the eyes are dead. Uh, the teeth are ready for chomping. Um, so here we are just BSing our pants <laughs> off. We don't know what we're talking about. So that is the reason why today we've wheeled in the perfect expert to discuss this. Her name is Rivers Gambrell. She is a research fellow at the University of Oxford, and she's currently writing a book not only on Nixon, but his obsession with sports, which we'll get into today. Um, talk us through his background, because I understand he, he grew up pretty poor, his dad was a farmer. What was the score there? Yeah, he sort of played up his poverty in later years. I mean, he always had a roof over his head, but um, his dad uh, owned what Nixon would say was the only unsuccessful women farm in California. Um, it wasn't a fun home life with Nixon. Um, it was a very traditional Quaker household. Um, the kids worked a lot, and uh, they never went, took vacations. Um, they didn't dance. Uh, so it wasn't really a fun house to grow up in. Wait, Quakers don't dance? No, and actually Nixon's father had to give up dancing when he married uh, Nixon's mother, who Ugh. came from a very Quaker family. So she was the Quaker. She was the source of, uh, you know, the bummerness in the family. Right, true, yeah. And But she did look like a saint probably compared to his dad, because his dad, by all accounts, was not necessarily the nicest person in the world. Oh, no. What was his problem? He liked to debate, you know. He just, he liked arguing and we definitely see that in Nixon, too. And he oh. learned that from his dad. Um, his dad really encouraged him to go and participate in the debate society. And they would have arguments over the dinner table. And uh, so that's kind of how he grew up. It sounds like his dad was kind of a bullying character. Yeah. And he really encouraged him um, to play sports and sort of like have a masculine image. He thought that that was really important. And I mean, it is also a tragic household. We have to remember Nixon had two brothers. Um, one died of meningitis at the age of seven. Uh, his older brother, Harold, also died of tuberculosis. So it's a kind of depressing household, too. Yikes. They should have done some more dancing. They would have been healthier. <laughs> Maybe they weren't in the mood for dancing after that, Katie. I don't know. Like There's, there's some stuff about his early years, Katie, that I was reading about, which make him a more sympathetic character than initially I might have thought. This idea, Rivers, that there's the family store and Nixon, when he's a teenager, he's getting up at four in the morning to drive to the city to get veg, to bring it back to the store. Then he's working in the store all day. Um, he gets offered a, a, a grant for Harvard and he has to turn it down because he's got to work in the family store. Right. The family couldn't afford to pay his room and board at Harvard, even though he'd gotten a scholarship. Um, and at that time, his brother was already sick, so he had to stick around Whittier, California, and uh, go to the local college. And for this reason, he always sort of harbored this resentment for Harvard guys um, because he sort of missed out on that opportunity. He does seem like a guy who is pretty handy with balancing all those various chips <laughs> on his shoulder. Um, I want to know a little bit more about his uh, truncated sports career because as you say he was on the football team but never played so how does that work I'm not how do you even get on a team where you're not allowed to play right so his coach um, was a really influential character in Nixon's life and I think he felt a little bad for Nixon and he always like kept him a position as like a reserve on the team um, but Nixon took a huge beating at practice um, the guys really just didn't let up on him and he earned their respect for that but the student body really liked him and they would go up cheering whenever you know the few times that Nixon actually 
actually made it onto the field um, because he's such a little guy, you know. Was it sort of an Eddie the Eagle type situation yeah. where you just have to root for the underdog? Exactly, yeah. But yeah, he doesn't look a big guy. There's there's something about his childhood, Katie, something else about his childhood, which I felt quite sympathetic towards him. And that's this idea that he's named after Richard the Lionheart. So if we go back to this idea that there's this tension throughout Nixon's life between the man he wants to be and the man he actually is, like, thanks very much, Mum and Dad, naming him after this warrior king. Yeah, that's so yeah. much so much pressure on this this little kid growing up in Anaheim. Although I think he seemed to thrive under the pressure because he seems like a, a he's not a quitter. He's a real fighter. He puts the effort in. Some might say he's a tryhard. But uh, I have to say I have some begrudging respect for him. I I did note with interest that after he graduated from university that he hoped to join the FBI. Yes, this is a really interesting story. Um, so when he was at Duke Law School, the FBI sent a couple of recruiters down to the university, and Nixon liked what they had to say and signed up. And one of his Duke professors told him, uh, you're too good a man for this. Um, but Nixon ignored his advice, applied for the FBI, um, and he was basically ghosted, as the kids would say today. Um, he They never called him back, and uh, he wondered why, and later he found out through um, J. Edgar Hoover that it was simply due to budget cuts in 1937. But uh, Hoover was really missed, miffed because when Nixon became vice president, he's like, I really missed out on having an agent, you know, that would have been a good uh, addition to the bureau. Interesting idea that someone thought that, that Nixon was too good a man for the FBI <laughs> yeah. with the way that his subsequent career would turn out. Absolutely. Definitely. And he even uh, on that application put his former football career, if you want to even call it a career because he just rode the bench, uh, he, he listed that as a reason why he'd be physically fit enough for the job. Kind of interesting. Wow. And once he got established as a lawyer, he went back to his small town of Whittier. Is that right? Right. So he went back to Whittier. Um, he courted Pat Nixon. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they, they met in a play. He really pursued Pat, and I think this is sort of a gives us a good illustration of what would happen later in his career, his uh, his ability to go after things and, and do whatever it takes to get what he wants, because Pat really was not interested. And she would set him up on dates with her friends, and she did everything to avoid him. <laughs> He's not getting the message. No, he did not get the message. And she said, you know what? The only way you can hang out with me is if you drive me to my dates with other guys. What? And he would drive her. the man. What yeah. a simp he was. <laughs> Indeed. He would drive her from Whittier to Los Angeles and drop her off on these dates. And then he would have to go occupy himself by going to the movies and walking no. around but meanwhile trying to take his mind off of what he's missing out on so it's kind of a miracle that my mouth is just <laughs> hanging open i can't believe this what a nerd <laughs> and also i was reading up on this and he wrote tons of nerd love letters oh, yeah. to pat and here's an excerpt yes i know i'm crazy he wrote in a note he shoved under her door and that i don't take hints but you see miss pat I like you. Oh, it's so cute. I mean, do you think he's cute or is it a bit I, desperate? I, I mean, know. it's it's a, it's a pathetic. Desperate, Tom. Like, yeah. what's what's changed Pat's mind there? Because you know he hasn't got the sexy chat, has he, Richard? <laughs> he he doesn't have game. Be, he hasn't have game. He would be a terrible uh, sexter, wouldn't he? He'd be rubbish at it. He just sounds desperate. Like, why is Pat not put off by this? <laughs> he really just wore her down over the years. Oh, that, and old, like she that said, old romantic charge <laughs> ground her into the dirt. She said later that she felt bad for putting him through the ringer like that, oh, to her credit. But uh, it was not like an easy courtship for him at all. And, um, yeah, it was just 
Persistence is key. <laughs> Aww. So they um, they got hitched, and then I understand that he could have opted out of military service as a birthright Quaker, but he sought a commission in the Navy. Why did he do that? So at the time, he had just gotten a job in the office of uh, Price. Oh, my gosh, I'm always going to forget OPA, Office of Price Administration, I think. But he was just bored to death because his job was basically making sure that people were following the tire rationing laws. And he was just bogged down in paperwork. So I think part of the reason he joined the Navy was simply to avoid the boredom. Um, And ironically, he ended up being stationed in Iowa at first, which isn't necessarily a state known for its exciting prospects. But um, (laughs) and then there's also, you know, some historians suggest he already knew at that point that he wanted a political career. And back then, you really couldn't think of even having a political career if you didn't have some kind of military service. So he was thinking ahead in that way, too, probably. So if you're saying that he had this idea, perhaps, in the back of his mind that he was going to enter politics, how did that come about? So he just he actually just got a call from a guy who was considered his political mentor back home um, that they wanted him to run for Congress. They kind of considered him dead on arrival. They really didn't expect to win this seat because the the guy who had held the seat was pretty popular. Um, but Nixon won the election uh, in his campaign. He he used self-deprecating humor to his advantage. He talked about, yeah, I played football, but not very well. Um, at the time, he didn't even own a suit, you know, so he went to meet with the, with this commission in his in his Navy outfit. Um, but he really endeared himself to, to the population and, and managed to win. And from there on, like his political career, he just sort of skyrocketed up the totem pole really quickly. And also he did resort to what they called dirty tricks. You know, he did have sort of a negative campaigning uh, reputation over the years. Even at the start he was doing that, was he? Yeah. And I think the most famous probably line is uh, when he runs uh, against Helen Douglas and he said she's a communist. She's pink right down to her underwear. Um, So he's known for saying sort of crude things like this and uh, gets a reputation for that. And then he jumps on the on the reds under the bed bandwagon as well. Is that something, was he like a genuine firebrand anti-communist or was he like, was this real politic where he thinks, that's my angle, that's what's going to carry me on? Yeah, he was definitely fervent anti-communist and that really endeared him to the conservative right. And that's one reason why he ended up on the Eisenhower ticket. I'm interested in the fact that as he was so gung-ho about getting rid of reds under the bed, et cetera, he also supported civil rights for minorities, um, which seems a little oddly progressive in that context? Yeah. And I think a lot of this stems um, from the relationship that he had with his football coach, who was a member of the La Jolla Indians. And um, he had a really good relationship with this guy. His name was uh, Wallace Chief, was his nickname, Newman. Ah. And um, this guy really informed Nixon's views on like Indian self-determination. Um, and so he did have a pretty good record on civil rights when it came to Native Americans. He was also you know, very heavily in favor of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And uh, this is actually where he sort of split from Eisenhower. Who in terms of um, desegregating rights, yeah. schools in America. Right. So and, so Eisenhower was for it. He was reluctant to Yeah. To so Nixon desegregate. was really more an authority on civil rights. Yeah. To his credit, he actually has a better record on civil rights than quite a few Democrats at the time. He initially has the support of some black athletes and celebrities um, and that relationship sours over the years when Nixon has to, you know, appeal more to racist Southern voters. But initially, he did start off with a pretty decent record on civil rights. And even though he may have questioned minorities' ability, he always thought that they should have an equal chance to compete with white folks. 
So he gets match made as vice president to Eisenhower. And as he's running or as they're campaigning, he gets stuck with a little bit of a scandal. What was that? The New York Times published this report saying that there was an $18,000 trust fund um, for Nixon that was set up by these millionaires in California. And uh, he really almost gets booted off the ticket for this. He almost thinks about resigning. His wife, Pat, convinced him not to do that. Um, And so he goes on television and makes one of the most famous political speeches of all time, which is the Checkers speech, and uh, really endears himself to a lot of Americans by talking about – he really goes through all of his finances. And Pat was – extremely embarrassed. She said she didn't want people to know how little they had. Um, and and uh, it was a bit humiliating for her, but it was a political triumph. And so what what's the nitty gritty of the Checkers speech? Who, what is Checkers? Checkers is the Cogger Spaniel that uh, he, he talks about uh, the little girls that they've been sent. Uh, that's the only gift he ever received um, was this little dog. And he's like, and I don't care what people say, we're going to keep him. Ah, uh, so he, he invokes his children. Does right. the old... Uh, lobs the softball of the kids and you're not you're not going to rip a puppy out of the arms of some little exactly. blonde-haired Aryan children. He seems very good at manipulating people early on, Katie. That's what I mm. thought when I watched this speech because he's taken what could have been the end of his political ambitions, a scandal, and he flips it round and the way even the way he sets up the fact he's going to talk about Checkers the dog with this sort of mere culpir of actually there is a gift I've taken. Yeah. And you're going, oh, he's going to admit it. And then he <laughs> flips it around and it's a little dog. We're not letting go of this dog because I love my daughter. He's very manipulative, isn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, and this speech was just, it got hundreds of thousands of letters of support after this. And um, he met Eisenhower in West Virginia shortly afterward. And Eisenhower said, that's my boy. And um, yeah, managed to stay on the ticket because of the mm. speech. Does Eisenhower actually like him? Not really. No. Um, I think the, the t- it would be like a quiet disdain. He respects Nixon a lot, but he's just not his favorite person character-wise. And uh, Eisenhower definitely wasn't the biggest fan. And when Nixon ran for the presidency in 1960, Eisenhower really didn't do him too many favors. A reporter asked him, he was like, what would you say Nixon's biggest accomplishments are? And Eisenhower said, if you give me a week, I might think of one. Bitchy. Bit shady. There's a lot of bitchiness around Nixon, isn't it? Like, I can almost see, Katie, why he starts railing against the world. Because so many people seem to have, not a problem with him, but they're putting barriers in his way. Whether it's his background or his parents who don't want him to do this and they don't want to do that and don't do that, Richard. And then, you know, the guy who he's serving as president comes out with that sort of catty remark. If we were to meet him, Rivers... What sort of person would he be if, if some weird parallel universe, he comes into our studio now and talks to me and Katie? Is he good at making eye contact? Is he shaking hands? Does he have that ability to connect with people? No, he's definitely not Bill Clinton. You know, people always talk about Bill Clinton making you feel like you're, you know, the only person in the room. Um, Nixon really didn't have that capability. But I think he would really like you because you're a former sports guy. Um, and that was the one way he could really connect with other people. And it sort of uh, alleviated some of the problems caused by in- his inherent social awkwardness. So yeah, if, if he came in here and we were to talk to him about, you know, the football team, he he would be okay. But you can even see in the debates, like he has shifty eyes and he has a very 
strange physical presence. And I think there's a reason why every documentary on Nixon opens with some of his aides saying, I never knew the real Nixon and what a bizarre guy he was. You know, he's often described as the weirdest person that some of even his closest advisors and friends (laughs) ever met. (laughs) What a distinction. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can see where the ambition comes from, I think, can't you? Because he spent his life being second choice. He's a reserve in the football team. He's vice president. And even though he tries to make the most of that role, He's not the main man. And also, I have to say, you know, he got her in the end, but uh, his wife was not so keen on him either for a really long time, other than as a chauffeur on her other dates. (laughs) There is a book I'd recommend, though, called Pat and Dick that you mentioned some of the love letters. It has all of the love letters and it it paints a little nice picture of their marriage. Um, Does she write him any love letters? Because the ones that I've seen, Katie, like the ones you've read out are just terrible writing, terrible desperate pleading from what appears to be a desperate lonely man. Does she ever reply? (laughs) They weren't as, let's just, yeah, his were more fervent than hers, I guess you could say. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, dear Richard, I received... (laughs) Your 14 letters today. (laughs) Regards, Pat. (laughs) Regards, Um, yeah, best. Yeah. (laughs) If if you want to, like, see a humanizing version of Nixon, all you have to do is get on YouTube and look at him crying at Pat's funeral. It's absolutely (sighs) devastating. Um, he really did rely on her, and he and he died not long after she did. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> now I feel all bad for mocking Sorry. him. <laughs> we've we've gone full circle here, Katie. We started off saying he was the worst president of all time until the man who has become the worst president of all time, and now we're getting all tearful about Tricky Dicky. I'm getting tearful about Tricky Dicky. Okay, we'll return to this story in a couple of moments, but first, a few adverts. Sports stars—they're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs> Let's talk about the so-called kitchen debate uh, that took place, an impromptu uh, debate that took place in the American Exhibition in Moscow with Nikita Khrushchev. What was that all about? Right. So they had this sort of American exhibition. It was sort of a goodwill gesture um, between the U.S. and the Soviets. And yeah, Nixon, he was in this sort of model home kitchen. Mm-hmm. and uh, has Probably just like bragging about how technically advanced. We've got yeah, this, cap- you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, Nikita, is a toaster. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the yeah, superiority of uh, the American kitchen. And um, this wins him a lot of points back home. I know that uh, Khrushchev piped up saying that uh, he would predict that Nixon's grandchildren would live under communism. And then uh, Nixon's riposte was, no, your children are going to live under capitalism. You stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Right. It's odd to see he had such success on television and really used the medium successfully only to go on and have that disastrous first debate with Kennedy. Yeah. So I've heard about this. Tell us about that. So. It was actually four debates, but the mm-hmm. first one is the one that people remember because— And um, this is when he's running for president against it, John against, F. Kennedy. Yep, in 1960. And uh, so he wears this awful gray suit that kind of melts him into the background because there's a gray background. He's sweating profusely. He's just recovered from, like, a knee injury. Um, he refused makeup because he saw Kennedy had refused makeup. But Kennedy had been tanning— you know, good-looking guy. Nixon really could have used some kind of makeup. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, so he doesn't come across very well on television during that first debate. Um, he gets his act together by the second debate. You know, he wears a different suit. But like like most people say, he, he won according to radio listeners and lost according to televised. Ah, so he had the goods in terms of the content for the debate, but he just didn't have the look. That must have driven him mad. Oh, yeah. He really lost the election by a really slim margin. And 6% um, of those polled say that the debates had an impact on their decision. So, And was this the first time that we saw debates on television, televised presidential debates? Right. And right. Uh, he really did learn from this because he didn't debate Humphrey in 1968. He refused to debate McGovern because he had such a big lead in 1972. So we never see Nixon debate again. Oh. Um, that whole experience um, made him hate the Kennedys more than ever, I think. It's so tight, that election, isn't it? I didn't realize yeah, until yeah. Lo- in looking back. So there's 112,000 votes in it, 0.2%. But, you know, he must have had a certain amount of heartburn, like you say. I mean, he yeah. had... Uh, he had so many chips on his shoulder by this stage, so many grievances. Uh, he hates the press. He's um, angry and disarmed by being beaten by JFK. And apparently he vowed, I will never again enter an election at a disadvantage by being vulnerable to the Kennedy family or anyone on the level of political tactics. So he's like, that's his vow. Right. Um, and then he doesn't leave politics entirely. What does he do next? No, so he does run for governor of California. He loses by five percentage points, I believe. Hmm. Um, and people really thought that that was the end of Nixon. And he comes out and makes this, this statement, you know, you're not going to have me to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Bitter and again. he's actually very bitter. Yeah, he's drunk when he makes that speech. Or he <laughs> had, yeah, I think he'd, he hadn't slept much and he was either hungover or still drunk from the night before. Trying to drown his sorrows again, isn't he? Yeah. He's getting. More and more bitter, Katie, the more we hear about him. And I could see why Kennedy would really wind him up, because Kennedy's the man that he would like to be. So Kennedy is attractive, he's charismatic. Rich, elite. Rich, exactly, and had an awful lot of help from his family yeah. in quite nefarious ways as well. But Good it's dancer. Nixon who gets, oh, I'm sure he could dance that boy. But it's, <laughs> it's Nixon who gets the rap from history, and everyone thinks of Kennedy as this sort of you know, almost religious, iconic figure. Yeah, well, you know, he didn't sweat a lot on television, so <laughs> already he's one up on, on Nixon. How did the public regard Nixon at this stage? I think a lot of people thought his political career was dead, but he calls his way back, and uh, he does so by, like, appearing on things like the Jack Parr show in 1963. He plays the piano. Um, What's wow. the Jack Parr show? It was a. It was just a one of the stereotypical sort of talk shows at the time. Oh, like and, a late night, late night talk yeah, show on American television. He, so he goes on there and he says, "Well, um, if that California race didn't ruin my political career, this will." The piano playing. He said, "Republicans don't want another piano player in the White House because Harry Truman had been a piano player." Um, he goes over to Vietnam. He takes another world tour. So he stays in the limelight by appearing on these talk shows and in the news by criticizing the Johnson administration's handling of Vietnam. So he's still around. Um, and I think, if anything, gives us an indication that he was going to run again. It was probably the fact that he turned down the he got offered the baseball commissioner job. Um, a bunch of athletes and some really? baseball owners want, really wanted him to take it in 1965. And he said he had other things on his mind. Right what would I did not know this detail. And how would this be advantageous to the baseball commission to have Nixon just the, because he was a 
an eight-year-long vice president at one stage? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was always at the games, and he had a mind for baseball. He really knew the sport. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a bad pick. Um, he always said that if he wasn't a politician, he'd much rather be a sports writer. And if he had another life, that he'd rather be uh, in sports reporting business. It's, it's funny that, Katie, because when I was a sports writer, my other ambition was to be president of the United <laughs> States. So I can tell you where he's coming from. I mean, and he really was a diehard fan. And if you look at the at the White House phone records, he spent so much time talking to coaches, I would say probably just as much as with some of his advisors. Um, this was really his only way to relax in the office. He really sort of started this presidential tradition of phoning teams and phoning coaches. He really just wanted to endear himself to these guys and be part of that sort of fraternity of men or whatever. He wanted to be a jock, did he? Yeah, and he was much more of a jock sniffer than a jock. A jock um. sniffer. <laughs> Is that actually a phrase? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So how does he get into his 1968 presidential run? So the night that he decided to run, he had just finished watching the Ice Bowl, which is this famous football game. Uh, it was the, the worst cold game ever. And he's sitting there in Miami with Reverend Billy Graham. And uh, they went on a long walk on the beach. And then that night he decides, I'm going to run. Um, Pat wasn't very happy about that because she thought those days were over. But he threw his hat back in the ring and decided to run again. And uh, so that's when he whips out his silent majority slogan. He's anti-hippies. He's anti-anti-war protesters. The thing is, though, it strikes me that wouldn't America be a little bit sick of the Vietnam War by 1968? Or did that come later? Right. Um, that that had already started happening. Yeah. Um, it was clear that it wasn't going very well. Right. Um, but at the same time, you had a lot of folks who just were supportive. There was a lot of hawkish people out there. Um, but Nixon always said, what did he say in his first inaugural address that the the best title is you can bestowed as the title of peace holder? You know, so he built himself up as a guy who was going to end the war and, okay. and, and you know, make sure that America, when we left, we left with dignity. I mean, we know now about the Chenault affair, which is basically he um, went behind uh, President Johnson's back and basically thwarted the peace attempts because he told them, you know, put off the negotiations until I'm president. Yeah, it's a pretty nefarious affair. I mean, that's probably one of the darker moments about Nixon is that he actually sabotaged our peace efforts so he could be elected. So he, yeah, so he could be the person to then swan in and and sort it all out. So um, also one of Nixon's buzzwords was law and order. (laughs) Tom, Mm. you'll you'll be familiar with that from uh, (laughs) the the last four years of... uh, Ex-President Trump, I have to just like sigh. I have to gird my loins every it's time. It's gone, Katie. It's I know. Gone. Just like my te- my masseter muscle in my jaw just tenses every time I think about this. But uh, yeah, the old the, the old law and order thing. I think it's just sort of a knee-jerk reaction where it's a trope for um, the, the suburbanites and the, the middle class folks where you think, oh, I don't want anything to change. I don't want any anything exciting to be happening from the underground. No hippies, please. <laughs> and that was, was that election the beginning of the so-called Southern strategy or did that come later? Right. That was a Southern strategy. Um, he brought Spiro Agnew as his vice president on board to appeal to these racist white Southerners. Mm -hmm. Um, And during Watergate, that's sort of his last ditch effort. He goes down to Alabama and he goes down to Georgia because that's sort of like the last bastion of support. Mm -hmm. So I think it shows that the Southern strategy paid off. I think it's been, you know, a little overstated, but it was a really important aspect of um, his political career. So at what point in Nixon's 
trajectory up to uh, political superstardom, <laughs> does his paranoia kick into full bloom? Because that is something that defined him at the end of his career. But do we see that developing? I think that really starts during his first term as president. Okay. Um, you see, like, the release of the Pentagon Papers uh, and events like this. So he had reasons to be paranoid. I mean, some people will say that this is because he was drinking more um, I think he was more drunk on power than on liquor most of the time. But um <laughs> but yeah, it really starts sort of sort of during his uh first term and that's part part of the reason is because he surrounds himself with these guys who just kind of bring out the worst in him. Um these are media experts and they sort of like feed into his worst fears and his worst paranoia mm -hmm. and his biases. And yeah, so that's sort of when he devolves into the caricature kind of that we see him as today as sort of the hunched over guy um, and this is the, the sort of shakespearean side to this tragic figure katie isn't it so you'd think with all the ambitions that he's had and all the barriers he's had to to surmount that when he becomes president it makes him happy because right. this is always what he's proved to people that actually he is the man and it doesn't matter where he came from and w which college he went to he's president but it doesn't seem to make him happy it, it in a weird way seems to make it worse does this mean I'm just trying to apply this to my own life? Don't ever try for anything because it'll <laughs> exactly. because it'll just it even if it works out, you're still not happy. I don't like this message, Tom. What are you laying on me? <laughs> there's, an, there's a great quote about him, Rivers, um, which is um, he assumed the worst in people, and he brought out the worst in them. Yeah, what an awful thing to to have said about oh, you. Yeah. There's also the, like the shortest distance between two points is over four corpses. You know, Whoa. so it, there's a, a lot of sayings about sort of how he conducted himself once he had reached the highest office. There's a couple of images for when he's president, and we and we will stop our Nixon deep dive at this point, Katie, because we want to talk about Watergate as a separate. It's a separate lyric, isn't it? Cliffhanger. Bum, bum, bum. Mm. But there's these two images, Rivers, that I've seen. One of them is Richard Nixon in the White House with Elvis, and the other one is Richard Nixon in the White House with the Carpenters. And in all these photos, he looks so pleased, Rivers. He's got... We talked about his smile at the start, Katie, and how his smile made you think he's the man in 1968. Yeah, I did, when I was an infant. By the time he's with these celebrities... The smile just seems even more manipulative, Rivers. It just seems, it doesn't seem like here is a genuinely happy man. Hey, I'm meeting the Carpenters. Hey, I'm meeting Elvis. He's just got this little manipulative look on his face. This is going to play beautifully for me. Exactly. It's very politically devious, isn't it? Um, it's just, yeah, this is going to look great in tomorrow's papers. He would read the papers obsessively and knew that that was something that would get him some good attention, some good headlines. And, uh, that's definitely sort of like the tragedy of Nixon is that he becomes so obsessed with his image that he doesn't even really enjoy these interactions at some point. So in some ways, Kate, this feels weird because we're going to have to stop this Nixon chat because yeah. the biggest thing that Nixon ever does or doesn't do or is associated with in our minds doesn't come up in Billy's magnum opus until verse five. Yeah, because there's a lot of other stuff that goes down before yeah. then. I have to hand it to Billy because my beginning and end of understanding about Richard Nixon was Watergate. But it turns out that there's a lot going on. Like, I didn't know anything about this whole sports gambit that he was working. And um, also the fact that he's so driven. Like, people, people who are driven and tragic, it's such a good story. It's very juicy. Yeah. They said his best friend was his yellow legal pad. You know, <laughs> he would just... <laughs> 
just getting sadder and sadder. Yeah. You're going to have to stop, Rivers, because I'm just feeling I'm feeling quite dejected you know, about this. Make people more sympathetic towards, you know, one of the shadiest characters in political history. Rivers, there's so much that I've enjoyed hearing about Richard Nixon. If our loyal listeners are similarly inclined, where should they go next? So I think probably they could start with Nixon by Nixon, in his own words, which is a documentary on HBO um, that features uh, the tapes. So that's a good way to segue into the next episode on Watergate. Um, that's really fascinating. And also I'd encourage them just to read his his own memoirs. I mean, he's not a bad writer. He, there's a reason he's a best-selling author, even after the presidency. And uh, it's interesting to, to see it from his perspective. How would you sum up Nixon's legacy? Cannon fodder. <laughs> That's how they described him on the football team. Um, I don't know. I would say he's just genuinely complex, mystery wrapped in an enigma. I mean, I'm not sure. I really don't know. And that's that's saying something because I've read about this guy for five years and it says something that I'm not sure what to make of him sometimes. And I think that's true for a lot of folks that study Nixon. No one's ever going to know the real Nixon. Maybe Pat. But <laughs> for those of us that study him, he's really just a very complicated figure. Well, Rivers Gambrell... Thank you so much for coming along, and I look forward to this book whenever you get around to finishing Thank it. Thank you so much. Uh, on Nixon and his sports obsession, there's a lot going on there. Thank you so much for making our brains bigger. Thank you for having me. Right, Katie, this nefarious character, we had all our assumptions about Richard Nixon. Do we feel differently about him after hearing all that? Oh, 100%. I uh, feel a certain amount of sympathy, and I'm also begrudgingly admiring of how driven he was. I mean, stuff did not come easily to him, and he suffered a lot of setbacks, and he just took a licking and kept on ticking. Yeah, all those advantages that other people had. So he's come from that super tough background. He somehow made it to the highest office in the land. Okay, he's not blessed with physical beauty. There's nothing he can do about the jowls, I'm guessing. <laughs> he's not been on a jowl expansion diet or anything like that. No, and he's he's not a charmer. You know, you can't... You can't fake it, that, can you? You can't fake it if you don't have that charisma. And yet, he triumphed on his own terms. And that's not easy to do, especially when people are just saying, you know what, you've had a good run, you should just pack it in. And he didn't pack it in. But um, I don't. I don't know why I'm so sounding so gleeful about that because he didn't uh, help American democracy uh, by sticking around. But in terms of Billy, including him in the song three times, did he just need some extra syllables in there? <laughs> well, he had to mention Watergate, didn't he? Yeah, and had I to mention Watergate. The thing about Tricky Dicky is the span of his influence because he is vice president from 1953 and then Watergate's not happening until the early 70s yeah so 73 yeah so so Billy's looking at his verses and he's thinking I've got to get him in early doors he's, and then he's, I can't not get him in there yeah he's setting him up I don't know I think it's one of those things where retrospectively y- you realise he's important so had Watergate not happened you would not be mentioning Richard Nixon yeah. a bunch of times I think it's just one of those things where because Nixon ended up being such a singular force in American politics by the time of his ignominious end, the the first and only president to resign the presidency, um, I think you did want to sort of set that up, foreshadow it in yeah. the narrative. Yeah. And in, just in case we are letting Nixon off our collective hook a little bit here, 
with his endearing failures and the things he got through, it also feels a bit to me like he was laying a very clear trail for Donald Trump to follow. He was, sure. he was dropping the little sweeties as he went through the forest and was saying, look where you can go if you do this. Play this card. Be populist. Do this. Do that. Use this new medium. He, he maybe more than any other president, more than even Reagan with how populist Reagan was, he was the prototype Trump. There is a certain amount of um, anti-hero worship going on with Nixon now, I think, because he's seen as a, almost like a dashing maverick, which is not so great. But I guess that is the effect of time softening your evilness. Yes. So, Kate, we've had some big hitters early doors in verse one of We Didn't Start the Fire. We started with Harry Truman. We've had Joe McCarthy. We've had just now Richard Nixon. And next time, Katie, Studebaker. 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 <laughs> That's a massive curveball for us, isn't it? It's it's a little strange. Uh, it, it's just a random car. It almost sounds like a dessert. I kind of wish it was a dessert. Two Studebakers over here, please. Yeah, it'd be like lots of ice cream and lashings of <laughs> whipped cream. A bit sick. Yeah. Oh, I wish I'd had that Studebaker last night. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the beauty of Billy's song. It's the beauty of what we're doing, Katie, as we skip arm in arm through Billy's Magnus Opus. It's we a, never quite know the strange places we'll end no, up. No, it's a little undigestibly eclectic, much like a Studebaker Sunday. <laughs> So that was fire. Now it's your turn. Do me and Katie a favour. Be the spark that spreads the fire. Tell your friends. Leave us a review. Maybe you've got some stories about future episodes, about future lyrics. If you have, send them to us at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. 
Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.